Hi, everybody. Welcome to Mormonish. I'm Rebecca. And I'm Landon. And you might see a familiar face here on our screen. We have back with us the incredible Ben Brown. How are you this morning? I'm doing really well, Rebecca. Landon, how's it going? We are also doing very well. We are so excited to have you back. Our um, viewers and listeners might remember that a little while ago we did a short. It was maybe like 15 minutes very quickly to talk about Ben Brown, also known as Fresh King Benjamin, because he had a show that was a month or so ago that was incredible and we wanted to get the word out. So we promised everybody that we would have him on again to get to know him a little better and have a longer episode where we can dig deep. And that is today. So thank you. Thank you for coming back on. Oh my God. I'm so excited to be here and uh, I'm excited to to have some fun chatting about some awful things. <laughs> oh, that's always a nice way to start the day, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> no, this is this is going to be a really interesting conversation. Um, let's start out as we often do with reading the bio of our wonderful guest. So I think Landon has that. Yeah, I do. Um, so the Fresh King Benjamin is a new Utah comic who has headlined such prestigious events as the Sunstone Symposium and Wyoming Equality Annual Rendezvous. He grew up on a Mormon polygamous compound in Wyoming before escaping to the vast and wicked metropolis of Salt Lake City. At the tender age of 20, since then, he's been slowly figuring out how to prosper in the heathen land while being widely distracted by all the exposed elbows. <laughs> ben is a mildly, mildly popular TikToker at the Fresh King Benjamin, where he shares his unique perspective on the modern world. So welcome, Ben. Thanks, That's you guys. right. <laughs> Welcome, Ben. And we should we should say right up front um, that in case you did not have a chance to attend Ben's show um, in the Salt Lake area last time, um, next weekend, right? Why don't you tell us very quickly about that at the beginning, and we'll mention it again at the end, but just so everybody can like quickly get their tickets while they're listening to the episode. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I have a really special opportunity. Um, there's a new, uh, a brand new room that just opened at the comedy club, downtown wise guys, which if you haven't been to the downtown wise guys and it's at the gateway in Salt Lake city, it's so cool. It's like such a cool vibe. So it's a fun place to kind of go and hang out and like see a show, but they just opened a new room called the Rickles room. And it's a small kind of like intimate 80 person room. So I'm doing two shows there. So I'm doing one on Friday, the uh, Friday, the 13th. Actually, I'm just realizing how uh, that should go well. <laughs> yeah, that's going to be a fantastic show. You guys definitely come to that one. And then there's going to be one on Saturday, the, the 14th. So two of them, there's just 80 seats. I just talked to uh, the, the owner. Um, and he, he like showed me the ticket sales and they're already 50% sold out. So like half the tickets are already gone. So if anyone wants to come, I'm probably, I'm pretty funny and I have a golden plate and I just protested conference and declared myself the true Mormon prophet. So I'm going to talk about all of that at the show. And so if that jives with you, if you're like, yeah, I want to hear about that story, then you should come to the show and we'll have a good time. I like that idea because I think we're all still processing conference and this might be a good way to just let yeah. some things out if, in a healthy you know, like a little bit way release <laughs> after conference, like come to me and I'll, I'll tell, I'll tell you how to just think. Oh, there you go. Amazing that we have to be told how to think, but we do a lot of us. So, oh my goodness. No, this sounds incredible. And no conference is about life coaching. Didn't you see those posts going around from TBMs that said, if you want to meet for free with some life coaches, I don't want to get on too much of a tangent before we get started. No, no, no. The one thought on that, which is that if 
<laughs> if that was life coaching, like that's the worst, like, like get your money back. Like they're scamming you <laughs> because the leader of the life coach organization told you don't listen to anyone who's not us. Yep. That ding, is ding, 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 ding. That's <laughs> wild. That's a crazy thing. Anyway, sorry. I just had to have that. Yeah. No. Nope. Because that is, so we're going to do stuff like that. We're going to have that conversation yep. at my show. <laughs> That's perfect. That's a little preview there. Cause I think we're all still reeling from some of the things we heard. So, all right, everybody go see Ben, everybody go see him next weekend and Friday the 13th, that will be a good show. I mean, so we're excited be, about that. Ominous. There's going to be some yeah. weird magic shit that's going to go down. <laughs> Well, and think about this whole month. Um, it's Friday the 13th. There's also a solar eclipse and a blood moon all in the same month. This uh, is apocalyptic, everybody. Coming is upon us. All right. It's upon us, but I think really the second coming is more upon them. That Very could good be. Point. Yeah. Very good. Point. We won't be yeah. here. We'll be burnt, burned as chaff. So <laughs> we're gone. <laughs> Uh, oh my goodness it's too much all right so we are gonna i know we just have too much fun there's just too many tangents that we can go on but we would definitely like <laughs> we would definitely like our viewers and listeners i think they got a little taste of how amazing you are just with our little short we would just like to help them get to know you a little better so why don't you tell us just a little bit about your background we read your bio which just made everyone go wait what you know, so yeah, let's just dive right in and and talk to us about whatever you would like to, because your story is just so amazing, so inspiring. I mean, it, it really is. Thank you, thanks, Rebecca. And I, I just I appreciate being able to come on and on platforms like these and, and tell the story because this it's not just my story. Um, it's it's a story of like thousands and probably millions of kids, and um, I just feel really lucky to be able to be where I am and to have the, the opportunity and the ability to, to speak the way that I can. So I really just appreciate that. Um, just that welcome and bringing me on. So I want to do maybe a kind of a short, like I'll do a kind of a quick overview of the, of my life story. And then we can kind of dig into some, some parts of it a little bit more. Um, I was born uh, into uh, a small polygamist family. Uh, they had uh, grown up in the LDS faith and had to decided to transition to what's called the AUB, which is one of many dozens of other splinter groups because all Mormon groups are splinter groups, including the LDS church. Uh, so all of them are splinter groups and my family hopped from the LDS one to the AUB. And uh, when that happened, they were sort of really uh, shunned and isolated and ostracized from their community in Wyoming. Where, which was predominantly Mormon. So it was like, it, it had a, a similar culture to Utah where it was like 60, 70% Mormon. And that was just like the biggest, the biggest building on in our entire town was this massive, like two block stake center of, <laughs> of the LDS church, right? Um, and so we were really, really isolated and um, we didn't go into town very much. Um, it was just my, my grandpa and his family, his wives, and my dad and his wives, and then sometimes some of my some of my dad's siblings would come in with their families, and um, we they had a lot of kids. I'm the I'm the I'm my mom's oldest, but I'm the third of my dad's, and I have um I have 15 siblings, 
And uh, for most of my childhood, my mom was pregnant. Uh, she had a child about every two years. And it would often happen in conjunction with my other with my other mom. And uh, so there were like every two years, there's another kid. So if anyone who's like had kids, uh, if you just think about the amount of care that's necessary for a child to thrive and then imagine two and then two and then two and then two and then two. Right. Um, that is overwhelming. And uh, and probably pretty traumatic, uh, both for the mother and for the kids. Um, so that was kind of my childhood. And then when I was eight years old, um, my family had started a bakery on the property, and the, it was uh, it was to sort of keep the um, sort of keep to keep the ranch operative. So the ranch uh, always lost money. It was never really it never really worked. Um, <laughs> And, uh, but my grandpa like really wanted to do it. And the AUB prophet, who was a dude named Owen Allred, he, uh, he came and told my grandpa like, Hey, this ranch is like, these are the mountains of Ephraim in the Bighorn Basin, Wyoming. <laughs> and this ranch is destined to be used as a place of refuge in the latter days. So right now we should all be fleeing to Wyoming to live on my family's ranch because it's the apocalypse and that's what it was there for. Um, which I think is hilarious because nobody wants to go to Wyoming. <laughs> <laughs> but it locked your grandfather in. Like when a prophet tells you you're pivotal to this religious group, oh, yep. you keep doing it. Locked in, right? And it's and that's such a great point. And it's such a great example too of how narcissists use the Mormon system to manipulate people, right? Because here's this, here's a dude from Utah, right? Just, just some guy named Owen. And he comes up to my family's ranch and tells my grandpa, hey, by the power of God, I speak who I speak for. It's absurd, right? It's an absurd thing. But when you're when your whole mind is scripted in the world of Mormonism, you expect that it's sometimes okay for other people to come and tell you what to do, which it's not. <laughs> anyway, so that happens to my that happens. Um, they start a bakery, and when they start the bakery, um, they start having the older kids work in it, and it starts off relatively mild right? Like anything does. It's not like when I was eight years old, all of a sudden I was working 16 hour days. When I was eight years old, right? They needed me for eight year old work. And so they told me, and, and the way that it sort of started is that I, that they, at first they offered like an incentive, right? So I really wanted a pet and I really wanted a pet dog. And, um, but my dad, there were like tons of dogs on the ranch and my dad didn't want another dog. And so he was like, there's, you can't have a dog but you can have a pig and <laughs> and i was like i words, was like, i was going to say words most mormon kids hear right no not at all <laughs> well and actually i think there's something very mormon though about your parent about you saying to yeah. your parents i would like a dog and they're like actually what you're getting yeah. is a pig <laughs> yeah metaphorically that, it happens to everyone you're absolutely right <laughs> like there's some level there's some measure of that in mormon culture where we're the little children are just like love me and give me the things that i need and the parents yeah. are 
have a pig. Yeah. Did you have, name the pig? Have a pig. <laughs> Fido, come here. Come here, Fido. Well, so here's here's the thing is I I I was sort of bummed about the dog, right? Because I wanted a dog. Because what I wanted was I was really lonely, right, as a kid. Because oh. there was because there was so much going on and, and so there was so much chaos that it was difficult to to have close emotional relationships, right? And also my parents weren't like showing up and nurturing me. And so I didn't really, I, I was just kind of like really lonely and surrounded by all of these people. And I wanted a buddy, right? And uh, and so I, I was like, a dog would be great because I could like train it and then we could like hang out and stuff. Uh, and so he's like, you, you, can have, you can have a pig. And I'd been, I'd, I was kind of voracious as a kid and I was really bored um, often. Um, and so I, I like read the encyclopedia and in the encyclopedia, I learned, cause there's not a lot of great literature on, on compounds. It wasn't like Harry Potter was there. Um, so I read that and, and in, and in it, it, uh, it, there had been like an entry on pigs. Right. And so it, I, I knew that pigs are, are actually pretty smart. Like you can actually train pigs like you can train dogs. And uh, so I was like, sweet. I mean, it's not a dog, but it, at least I can like, I can probably train it. I don't think it quite entered my mind what pigs were for. And so that, so that probably eventually we were going to eat this pig. But in my mind, I was like, sweet, I can train it. This will be great. And, uh, and so I, I obey, but this time. <laughs> I think that I think that I I think that we had actually seen Babe, and I, I think that my dad had really liked it. And so there was like like I remember watching that movie, and I remember this is all kind of happening at the same time, right? And so, and so uh, uh, I so my dad's like, you can work, you can have a pig, but in, in order to pay for it, right? Um, I can't just give you one; you have to earn it. Eight year old. So uh, what we're gonna do is we'll have you come and work in the bakery. We just need a little bit of help here and there doing these things, maybe one or two hours a day. And we'll keep track of how much you work and you'll earn some money and we'll just keep track of it. And eventually when you have enough to get a pig, then you'll get a pig. Can I ask and a question? Were you, was there any schooling for you right now? Was this gonna be like after school or was everything just kind of topsy-turvy and you were just educating yourself with the encyclopedia topsy-turvy so sometimes we have school sometimes we don't and it, and what it really depends on is how my mom is my mom kind of becomes the one that's sort of in charge of the schooling of the kids and so it kind of depends on how my mom is feeling and okay. so some days we have school and some days we don't have school <laughs> okay and uh and so there's nothing at this point there's nothing like formal we're not going to, we're not going, we're definitely not going to school and we're, uh, we're having classes maybe sometimes, but also right okay. at this point, I'm eight. There are two kids that are right underneath me. There's another kid that's my age. There's a kid that's older than me. And then there's two kids just below me. And then two after two more after that. And then two more. After, so there's nine children. Right? There are nine children and I'm eight years old and I'm one of the oldest. So it's just a, it's just a chaotic environment, right? Like there's no, I think at, at this point I've sort of, there's not, I, I want to speak honestly, cause I like, and I don't want to throw my parents under the bus, but like, I don't really blame them. 
like the the they were doing the absolute best that they could and they were overwhelmed like then the reason that they were overwhelmed is because they subscribed to a myth that told them have as many children as quickly as possible and who is now trying to claim that it never did that kind of stuff and it's never hurt anyone which is gross so um anyway uh i go to work for a while and I don't know how long I, I work, but I, I put some hours in and uh, I'm competent and I'm clever. And so I'm pretty good, you know, like I'm, I'm, and what, what happens? We go in, I, I come on to help slice the bread, right? So we make this bread and then we got to slice it and put it in a bag. And we have this big slicer. And the way that the slicer worked is there was kind of this conveyor belt and then sort of this arch. And then you would put the bread on this, conveyor belt and then like push it there's a handle you'd push it through but there was a guard that sort of hung down um to sort of protect the blades right and uh i'm eight nine years old and i learned how to use the slicer i'm pretty good at it right because i'm clever and i'm smart and uh kids are you know <laughs> there's a reason why uh, companies all over the world and all throughout history use children to do labor in factories, right? We're pretty good at it. And so yeah. I'm doing that. Uh, and at one, there's one time where I mismeasure as I have, as I'm lifting the guard, I mismeasure where my finger is and I get it caught in the slicer. And I remember kind of pulling my hand back and like squeezing it real tight. And I remember thinking, right, the thought that I had wasn't, oh my God, I need help. The thought that I thought was, oh my God, I hope I don't fuck up the line, right? Only I didn't say yeah. fuck up the line because I- Yeah. Fuck yet. <laughs> right? But it was all about the job. It wasn't about you personally. It was all about your role, no, a cog in this wheel. I just- had right and you know it doesn't take long right my hands are i'm keep feeding the bread there eventually there's blood <laughs> on the bread and so then they're like whoa we got to fix this and so then i then they like uh check me out they kind of like put a put some bandages on it and uh you know i'm lucky i just have a little scar on it like it didn't it didn't mess anything up too bad um but i mean that's kind of the environment that i'm in right and i'm eight i'm nine and, uh, you know, that goes on. I don't know exactly how long that goes on, but I, I remember there's a point where I, I think I want to, like, I, I, I was super into Legos as a kid and I think I wanted to buy like a Lego set. And, uh, and so I went to my dad and I was like, Hey dad, I, I know that we've been, I, you've been like keeping track of this money that I've been earning for a pig. And, um, I would really like to take some of that money and uh cash it out i want to cash out part of my pig money and i want to go buy a lego set <laughs> and i have some money and and he said no um and the way that he said no made me realize two things that were really kind of devastating and then like tragic and i like felt them really deep in my body and i think that the i think that the feeling that i felt is actually the core wound of someone who's been trafficked right and so what, what I felt was, number one, my dad hasn't been keeping track of how many hours I've been working. So he has no idea how much money I have. I've just been 
I've just been churning through this work and nobody's watching. Right. I, I fucking got my finger up for that. So there's this feeling of like my, my labor and my effort, my energy, my life force has kind of been wasted and it, and it's not mine, right? There's, it's been taken by something and I, I can't have it back. So there's that feeling. And then there's this feel, there's this other feeling and they both kind of live in my belly. And the other feeling is, um, oh, I'm a slave. I don't have a choice. This wasn't, Ben, do you want to work in the bakery? This was, you're going to work in the bakery. How are we going to get you to work in the bakery? Right? And and I think that, you, you know, earlier, uh, Rebecca, you kind of mentioned that um, you've had sort of similar experiences with going, getting woken up very early as a teenager, which is ridiculous. No one should ever wake up a teenager early. Waking up <laughs> a, teen, a young teen, yeah. <laughs> a teenager before 10 a.m. I think is child abuse. I think that we should not be doing that. Um, but like you, you kind of mentioned that. And, and when you when you talk about that, I can feel, I feel this echo of my pain in, in the pain that you're expressing. And I think that maybe the commonality, right? The thing that makes labor trafficking, labor trafficking and sex trafficking, sex trafficking is that it's about choice, right? Because the thing is, is humans like to labor and humans like to have sex, right? We'd like to do both of those things, but we want to be in choice when we're doing it. And when we're not in choice, when we're forced or coerced or threatened or anything like that is used to make us do something that we don't want to do, that's a traumatic experience, right? That's a, I can, I can still feel that feeling in my body, right? That just that sense of like, oh, the, the violation, right? And, um, and I start crying, right? I'm just, I'm just, I just start sobbing. And um, my dad trying to, tries to kind of like awkwardly comfort me, but he's not very good at it because he's never been comforted in his life. And so it just continues on. So then I'm nine and I start working a little bit more. And then I'm 10 and I start working a little bit more. And then I'm 11. And when I'm 11, uh, I'm, I'm a really good worker, right? I'm clever, I'm smart. And I, I can follow instructions really well. And I'm working with, at this point, I'm working with large industrial machinery, right? So we have, I don't know if you've ever seen like industrial mixers, but they, they're like cement mixers. Oh right? yeah. They're deadly. They can be deadly. I've read articles. About they actually are deadly. I'm like 11 years old and I'll be real. Part of it is kind of fun, right? Part of it is kind of like, cool. I'm I feel pretty capable, right? But I'm 11 years old and I have no concept of the danger that I'm in, right? I have no concept of the way that this, like these long hours and this lack of sleep is, is affecting the development of my body and my brain, right? I have no concept of any of this. And so I'm like kind of going, and some days are bad. Some days I don't want to be there, but some days it's like kind of, 
I'm like, it's kind of fun. I'm doing stuff and I'm getting paid 25 cents an hour. So that's cool. And I get to have money. So like, that's, that's a fair exchange for my labor. Right. So that's how many kind of, hours were you working? I'm just curious. So again, it kind of, <clears throat> it kind of, it, it, it grows. Right. But by the time that I'm, by the time that I'm 14, I'm regularly working 10 hour days easily. And I'm often some days, cause it, it varies, right. The, the, the length of the day kind of depends on what we're doing that day. So uh, maybe what I can do, I'll kind of walk you through a typical week when I'm like 14, 15. Cause when I'm, when I'm 11, not only do I start working in the bakery, but my dad takes over our main source of income for the bakery was we would take bread. We'd make a bunch of bread in the summer and we'd go to Yellowstone national park where we would sell it in the stores. So we had a contract with the, 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 the store that um, the, because Yellowstone is a national park, all of the grocery stores in the, um, in the national park are owned by one company. And so we had a contract with them. And so we were in all of the different stores in Yellowstone. So it was a pretty, it was a pretty cush, <laughs> pretty cush deal, right? Like well, that, was, that was some good money. And uh, so my dad started delivering there when I was 11 and he needed someone to go and help him, right? To kind of keep him awake while he was driving and to help, you know, uh, do the delivery work. So in the summer, a typical week would look like this for me. On Monday, I would get up around three o'clock in the morning and I would walk down to the bakery from my house and I would get things started. I would turn on the lights, I would turn on the oven and I would start mixing the dough. And on Mondays, we would probably have, uh, we would probably have, you know, between 10 and 12 batches of bread that we would make. And a batch is about 130 loaves. So we're processing hundreds of loaves of bread every day. So we do that. And I'm basically there working from three o'clock until the mixing is done. And that's usually around um, one or two o'clock in the afternoon. And so I've usually skipped breakfast. Maybe someone's brought me down something and I've kind of snacked, but I've usually skipped breakfast. And um, I usually have a late lunch. So I'm probably going to go take a break and have lunch around two or three. And then I'm going to come back around five or six and I'm going to help finish up the slicing. And then I'm going to be up until probably nine or 11, kind of wrapping things up, cleaning up and uh, and getting ready to go delivering the next morning. Because the next morning I'm getting up at two o'clock to help load my, to load my dad while he rests, right? Because he is going to be driving. So the ra rationale is dad needs to sleep. Dad's going to drive. So Ben is going to wake up and do the loading. So I get up two o'clock. I load it. We leave at around four and between, and it takes about three hours to get there. So from four to seven, we're driving. I'm usually driving about an hour of that, right? For the other times I'm sleeping, I'm unlicensed. And I have, uh, <laughs> I, at this point, I don't even have a social security number. So I'm like super unlicensed. Uh, then I'm coming back, right? Then we're delivering all day in Yellowstone. Um, and we get back home, maybe uh, 11, 12, one o'clock in the morning. And then I go to sleep. And then I get up around seven, six or seven the next day. And um, I do a granola day. And granola day is a little bit easier. So I come down to mix the granola and uh, I mix the granola for, um, you know, probably until about noon. 
And then I might take a little break and then I'll probably come back around three and do some more work until probably four or five or maybe six. So Wednesday is a little bit lighter of a day. Thursday is another bread day. So I'm again up at three. And then, then it's the same thing all day. It's the same thing as a Monday, only a, probably a little bit more intense because Thursday is a big day because we're getting into the weekend. And the weekend is when we sell the most stuff at the park. So I'm uh, I'm probably mixing until four or five. Um, we're probably, uh, you know, slicing bread sometimes until I leave the next morning, right? Sometimes it would be such a big day that other people would still be slicing when I came down to load the next morning. But I come down to load Friday morning at two o'clock. And again, two hours to do that, three hours to Yellowstone. I'm driving one of those hours. Um, and then we're delivering in Yellowstone all day. And the Yellowstone Friday delivery is a, big, a bigger one. We have to cover more territory. So it's going to take us two days. So we're going to deliver half of Yellowstone on Friday. And we'll stop around 11 or 12. And we'll sleep in the van in a parking lot somewhere. And then we'll get up the next day and we'll do the rest of the del delivering, probably wake up around six o'clock that Saturday. We'll probably be back home around three. And then I'm unloading. I'm kind of wrapping everything up. And so I'm usually done by Saturday and I'll probably go out and do something on Saturday. And uh, then it's Sunday and on Sunday we go to church and then we start all over again on Monday. I'm exhausted. <laughs> I can't I, even imagine at that. No, you know, and like you said, we were talking before and I mentioned being woken up early to go to the church welfare farm, you know, and not really understanding why I had to do that every weekend in my young life. You know, that's one day that's Saturday where, you know, I had to get up maybe at four 30. I, I can't imagine just this cycle yeah. that, and you knew nothing different. It was just what you did. That was, just, that you was my life. Right. And, and not only was that my life, right. That was the thing that I had to do. Mm -hmm. Because that was what God expected of me, right? Because I, I did like the, this whole thing exists because we need this ranch and we need the, when the ranch can't make money. So we need the bakery and the bakery is on the ranch. So we don't want to invite workers out there because one, we'll have to pay them more than 25 cents an hour. And two, then we'll have wicked Gentiles on the ranch and the ranch is a righteous yeah. place, Right. So it's very, very isolating. And uh, and that that's basically my life um, from the time I'm 11 until I'm 18. And when I'm 18, uh, my parents uh, and I kind of agree that it's time for me to go to college. They had big plans for me. They uh, wanted me to save America and uh, to bring it back to its righteous ways of Mormonism and the Constitution. So uh, they that's where I went to college to go try to learn how to do that. And while I was at college, I um, had a really awesome opportunity to go to um, Africa for 90 days for a whole summer. And um, I think that that experience did what I think a lot of Mormon missions do to a lot of Mormon youth, where they get thrown out into a world that's different. And they have to sort of grapple with this world that I'm in is very different from the one that I was told it, from what I was told it would be, right? And for me, that difference was delightful. Like I was like in love, like I fell madly in love with this beautiful uh, African woman. Her name was Grace. She was 55 years old. And I just thought she was like, I was like, oh my God, what the heck? Like I was like so smitten. I'm like 18. And, uh, and that's forbidden, 
right? That's because my my families that still the, the Mormons that are super racist. And so that I start to feel this tension in my body again between like what feels good and human and lovely and what I'm being told is truthful, right? So that kind of begins a very long unraveling that kind of uh, eventually I, I joined the LDS church as part of that. I call that my diet cult because I sort of like needed it to kind of <laughs> off. And I think everyone kind of needs a little bit of a diet cult when they leave, when you leave Mormonism, because it, it kind of, it messes with your development, right? It kind of messes with your brain. For sure. You sort of end up frozen at kind of different parts. So it takes a little bit of time to kind of unravel. Um, uh, I'm uh, LDS for about five years and then that doesn't really work for me anymore. Um, and, uh, and then after I leave the LDS faith, I, I realize that I need to do some really profound inner work because I am deeply fucked up <laughs> and, and not in a way that I, that, that like, that's not, there's a lot of self-love in that statement, but just a realization of all of the different ways that my upbringing created a, a mind that is not optimized for success in this world. And that I want to be optimized for success in this world, right? I want to exist in the real world, not in the pretend Mormon world. And if I'm going to exist in this real world, I'm going to need to do some real work on my brain to make sure that I can. And so I, um, I have this kind of realization one day, I'm like, I'm kind of like, I'm at like a business conference. I'm kind of walking around, like sort of thinking about myself. I'm like, why am I like, what's wrong with me is essentially what I'm asking. I'm like, what there's some, there's something broken. What is it? And I just have this realization. I'm like, oh, I'm traumatized. And, uh, so I was like, that makes sense. And then as soon as I said it, I was like, oh, duh, obviously, <laughs> like, obviously that's what I endured years of, uh, child labor. That was horribly abusive. Of course I'm traumatized. And so I Google trauma therapist in the city that I was living in. And this, the first person that pops up is a named Stacy Sandvik. And so I give her a phone call and I'm like, Hey, I, um, grew up on a Mormon polygamous compound. I was, I had to work a lot in a bakery. Um, I'm pretty sure I'm traumatized. Can I come and see you? And she's like, yes. And so I go and I start doing some, uh, what's called psychosomatic work with her, which is basically about, it's basically about learning to feel your body again. And it sounds really stupid because what, what started like the sessions as we started, it was basically, we would sit there and she would sit across from me and she would say, tell me what you feel in your body. And I'd be like, this is the dumbest thing in the entire world. Why are we doing this? This is so stupid. I can't feel my body. So there's not, oh, I guess I sort of feel like a little buzzing in my lower back. And then she's like, what do you notice about the buzzing in your lower back? And I'm like, are you, did, I'm paying you so much money for you to ask me stupid questions about what I feel inside the buzzing. Fine. I guess it's sort of like, it's sort of like red and it's sort of, it's kind of buzzes and it kind of like wants to move like this. And then all of a sudden I start dropping into my body and I start feeling all of the feelings that I hadn't let myself feel when I was uh, in the cult because it wasn't safe. Right. 
And there's a lot of feelings in there, right? Like it's, um, and so I start kind of shaking and shaking is, is one of the, one of the, it's a mammal's way of kind of purging cortisol, purging stress from the body. And if you've ever seen, like, if you've ever been at a dog park and like the dogs bark at each other and then they like shake, that's what they're doing, right? They've, they've heightened their cortisol and then the shake kind of gets it out of their system. And uh, humans, we've been taught not to shake, right? We've been conditioned to, to not because it's weird. I highly recommend it. Everyone should be shaking all the time because it feels great. Um, but my body starts shaking and I, I, I'm, I'm mostly kind of shaking anytime I can kind of turn it off. Right. Cause I'm good at dissociating, but for about 18 months, um, anytime I allow myself to feel my body, my body's shaking. And I would go into my closet sometimes and just lay down on the floor and just kind of let my body shake sometimes for several hours. And, and as I started to do that, I kind of started to come back into my body and that was like, that was like so magic. It was so, cause suddenly I could feel like the, the, the sensation of my feet on the carpet. I could feel the sensation of how good it feels to wear clothes, right. And how different clothes feel different. Um, and I started to kind of become more creative. I started writing songs. I started playing guitar. I started exploring comedy. And so there were all these different parts of myself that started to, to come out that had been sort of repressed because of the trauma and because of the the lack of choice that I'd experienced. Um, and that's kind of where I am now. So that's, uh, I kind of did, I, I guess I kind of didn't really do an overview. I kind of like did the whole, the whole thing. Where do we want to go from here? Yeah, that's the question. No, that's very interesting. How do you describe just basically being disassociated from yourself from all the years of, I mean, I really think it's like being a cog. You're just in motion and not autonomously for yourself. Yeah. So, and, and I think this, you know, this can all be framed in a larger conversation of a lot of different things that are happening right now that are coming out. I think of, I think of the Jody Hildebrandt situation, you know, I think of um, people without autonomy. I think of people that have perhaps been mentally coerced, kind of like what you were describing. I think of everything that's in the news about, you know, Tim, I think Tim Ballard and, and the new spotlight being shown on not only sex trafficking, but labor trafficking, like you're, you're describing. And a lot of us haven't really even delved into those concepts. So what are your thoughts on, on any of that? I think, because they're, like you said, buzzing that word, there's so much buzzing right now. I think a lot of our brains are ready to explode just with these new concepts, areas we haven't really considered before. And then we look at ourselves and say, why haven't I thought about this as much as I should before? This is something that's really important. So, and, and part of this are things that you've lived and can completely relate to. Yeah, I'm, I'm, thank you for that question. Cause I, this is kind of the next place that I, I wanted to go. Um, because I think that, uh, with all of this stuff, right. With, with Tim Ballard, with operation mm -hmm. railroad, with the sound of freedom. Um, I actually, I'm not that familiar with what's going on with Jody Hildebrandt. Um, but, uh, I think that everywhere in the Mormon world, we are exploiting children. And I don't think that we're doing it maliciously or intentionally. I think we're doing it because we were raised in a cult that was designed to exploit everyone. So if you understand what Mormonism is, right? Joseph Smith started a cult. He had a 
few thousand followers, right? Joseph Smith was basically Warren Jeffs. And he had all this influence and then he, he exploited them for money and for power and for sex. And then he came and then he died and then Brigham Young took over a bunch of them. And then they went out into the desert, thousands of miles away from civilization. And then they sent missionaries to poor places in Europe and sucked people across America into Utah where then they were stuck, right? So I think that there's a, a very large um, cultural predilection in Mormonism to treat children as assets and things to be utilized and exploited and not as human beings to be delighted in, to be cherished, to be nurtured. Because I, and I think that that's kind of the root wound in our culture that allows us to do things that violate the autonomy of our children. And so for me, growing up the way that I did, the, the sound of freedom and the Tim Ballard thing has been, has been emotionally really difficult because um, what Tim Ballard has done is that he's used real human pain to create sensational stories that make him look awesome and then use those stories to fool people into giving him their money. And a lot of people gave him a lot of money, millions of dollars. And I think that they did that because they want to be good people and they want to believe that they are fighting evil in the world. And I think what they don't understand is that the evil is in their shadow. It's not out in the world. It's right behind them and it's in them. And it's this demon that we have in our culture of exploiting our children. And it looks it, there, that it looks so different in all different, like in some places you see, uh, you know, you see teenage polygamous boys and they're building, building houses, right? Who do you think is building a lot of these houses in Utah? It's children, right? It's teenagers. Um, I see kids at farmer's markets and I'm like, you know, I kind of like, I, I, and again, I, I, <laughs> I like, I, I actually believe in the value of work and in labor and the value of that. Of course. And I of course. think, I think that when we, when we do it right, there's a relationship that we can have with our children that um, encourages that and helps them understand that their labor is their own, right? There's, there's, there are a few things more sacred than the, than someone's labor, right? Like we're putting our life force into making and and I think that in a lot of situations where kids are working, that is not being honored. They're being told you have to do this. And it's it's things that otherwise you would have to pay an employee to do. Right. So and so you're getting the, the so this company, right, or this family is getting the benefits of an employee without taking on the responsibilities of an employee. Because it's part of the family. We should just do it because this is how we've done things for, no, 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 no. We're, we're, we're abusing each other. And so that's what trafficking looks like. 
And sure, are there like, are there, and, and not only that, not only that in terms of labor, but in terms of the sex trafficking as well, because it's not, it's, it's not these sensational, like we're going to foreign countries and kicking down doors. It's, it's parents and family members who are emotionally and sexually stunted enacting abuse on family members. That's what it looks like in Utah. And it happens all the time. And so I think this is a really great opportunity for us to really listen to Jesus Christ, right? Because what did Jesus Christ say? He said, before you pluck out the moat in your neighbor's eye, cast first the beam that is in your eye. And so when I saw all of these Mormons get gaga-eyed for Tim Ballard, the feeling that I felt was, how fucking dare you? How dare you go and try and find children out there somewhere to save when there are children that need to be saved right here? I'm one of them, right? I needed to be saved, you guys. I needed to be saved. I was being exploited. I was being abused and nobody saved me. I had to save myself. And shame on this community for making children save themselves. Shame on that. We have to do better. We have to do better. And and that that to me is the real, I think, opportunity in what's and in, in all of this coming out, right? And all of this kind of blowing up and us realizing that that we were sold like, guys, if there's one thing that Mormons are good at, it's getting sold a lie. That's why we're all in this predicament. That's why we're in Utah is because our ancestors were good at, lit, at believing things that weren't true. So we got to be careful. We got fooled by this dude, Tim Ballard. And he took a bunch of our money and a lot of that money could have been spent. Oh my God, that could have bought so much therapy for people like me who really need therapy and currently either don't have it or have to pay for it ourselves. So Ben, uh, how much of this, uh, you know, because obviously I I think it's probably not fair to generalize and say, you know, that uh, just because you're Mormon, you're, you're being exploited. I certainly never felt that way with my, in my family, Uh, how much of this uh, is related to the polygamy uh, issue where you've got lots of children or even the Mormon culture where they tell you to have lots of children, where you then have to put the children to work because there's no way one man can, uh, you know, make enough to, to pay for, you know, 20, 30 people uh, and make them survive. So some of that to me is culture from the uh, from the result of the polygamy. But we do see in the right. church, we do see this, uh, you know, let's bring the kids in and make them clean the church on Saturday, which <laughs> the church had custodians and they let them all go to do this. And although, you know, you can say, well, that teaches my kids to work. That's a good value. But that That's a great concept, but you can teach them a you know, at home or other things, not with an organization that has billions of dollars that is that is profiting from the fact that these kids are coming in and cleaning the church for free for them. Yeah. So a lot of people wouldn't look at that as as trafficking or as 
you know, being a slave, but it, they are being taken advantage of. And so I, I think well, I, I love, I love those questions, Landon. And I, so let me, let me kind of, the, the thing that sort of made me realize that I'd been labor trafficked was when I, I was, so I used to teach high school. And as part of, if you were a high school teacher, you have to go through certain licensure programs. And uh, part of what you have to do is you have to take a, like a trafficking class. Like you have to learn what trafficking looks like so that you can spot it in your, in your classmates. And so I read the definition of labor trafficking and I was like, oh, <laughs> that's what that was. And the definition of labor trafficking is when you use fraud, force, or coercion to extort someone's labor, right? So you're, you're, it doesn't have to be, slavery doesn't look like I force you to do it. And so I, I would argue that having children clean church buildings is a form of labor trafficking because you're telling a child, come clean God's building. That's, that's, and I don't know that I would die on that hill, right? I would say it's fine. Like, I don't think that any, I don't, I doubt that anyone's being seriously harmed because they're cleaning church buildings. But what is happening that is harmful is that there's this little message getting put into the psyches of these children. And that message is, we can make you do whatever we want. You cannot say no to us. You have to do what we say. And that message gets put into the minds of these children every week, every time something like that happens. And then when they're 18, they choose to go spend two years of their life that they pay for spreading basically as marketers for a multi-billion dollar multinational corporation owned by one person. And if that's not labor trafficking, I don't know what the fuck is. Because these children have been groomed their entire lives that the only honorable and good choice is to go on a mission. Just like people, children in my family's culture and in in the, in the polygamous family, you know, in the polygamous version of Mormonism, just as they tell young girls, hey, the most righteous thing that you can do is to marry the prophet. And then on down from there, right? So it's, it's these subtle ways of programming and then these large demands on someone's life force, right? So uh, I don't think, I don't think that all Mormons are abusing their kids, right? That's not, that's not in any way what I'm saying. What I'm saying is there are aspects of the Mormon myth and Mormon culture that make it easy to abuse children and easy to mistreat them and easy to exploit them. And, and we don't, and that's true across all versions of Mormonism. That's true in the, I, I mean, I've, I, it hurts my heart sometimes because I, I talk to people. I talk to, I, I used to teach high school, right? So I used to talk to all these kids as they were about to go on missions. And then I talk to them when they'd come back. And the, the amount of suffering that is experienced by these young 
children who are not well prepared to go out into a world, right? They don't have, Mormonism doesn't give you a good scaffolding for navigating the world. And so we send these children out into a world to get rejected by humans. And then they learn that the world is bad. And it, the world isn't bad. The world's lovely. Oh my gosh, the people out in the, almost every human out there is phenomenal and generous and loving and kind. And so we teach them this like really broken way of seeing the world. And we just pretend like it's normal and okay that we did that. It's not normal or okay that we did that. We exploited these children and we stole some of their life. For what? To build more space castles? And I, I think that that carries over to adulthood too. And it, it, it may have from your, you know, from your uh, polygamous upbringing, but definitely in the church, you know, hey, you're a bishop. We want you to put 30 hours a week in and not get paid. And meanwhile, the church is bringing in ties that they're not spending and they're getting richer and richer and richer because they're not having to pay anybody for doing anything. Uh, and an organization gets rich off of the free labor of, the, of its people, um, which the people are doing it because they love other people and they want to serve, yet the organization is getting enriched off it. It's, it's not the service that's the problem. It's the enriching of an organization to me, Freeze which class. is the problem. Do they read their own book of words? Yes. Like the, the LDS church is the most egregious. It is the great and spacious building. Like if you, it is the most egregious abuser of, of that idea that you shouldn't extort wealth from people because of their belief. Oh my God, what an evil thing to do. Because belief is so sacred and so primal and so deeply human. And so to, to construct a, a, a creature that latches onto that part of the human like life force and then leeches off of it, oh, that's a gross thing to do. And, you know, and I, I feel I if, if like when you said that thing about bishops, right? <laughs> like these poor bishops who are working 30 40, 50 hours a week as professional counselors when they have no training, right? It's not, they have no, they're, they're hearing stuff that a trained professional should be hearing and they're Bob from the automotive shop, right? And, um, well, if, they're usually an orthodontist or, or, an orthodontist. <laughs> yeah, a, a dentist, a lot of dentists seems to be bishops. That's exactly right. So oh. earlier we were laughing because it's like the LDS church is kind of like the, the uh, for general conference. They were like, look at this cool, like life coaching organization. If the LDS church were a life coaching organization, it would be under investigation for the unethical extortion of its members. Because it has done egregious things, both in terms of the, the free labor that it is required from its members as a sign of, of like fealty and adherence to an organization and in the money that it has told those people they had to spend or they could not be with their families forever. There's no religion on earth there is no religion on earth 
anywhere that teaches that when you die, you don't get to be with your family. That is a uniquely Mormon idea that we invented so that we could bully people into giving us money. And that is gross. Yeah, money and time. And you're absolutely right. It's the ultimate coercion because that's held over your head and the parameters and how you can eventually be with your family continually change. You know, like I was very upset at this last conference when it said, you know, that I, as someone who stepped away, have chosen that I just don't want to be with my family anymore. I wasn't upset because I believed it. I was upset because my faithful family members believe it. And now look at me as a person, you know, that has simply chosen not, you know, I'm talking about my children, <laughs> right? Not just parents and extended family, my faithful children. It's kind of a devastating concept that I'm still working through. But, but yeah, I don't think we think this through a lot, but if you look at what they ask of us at conference, a lot of focus on tithing, a lot of focus on what about a senior mission? What about two? You know, it's just this ongoing, it's time yeah. and money. Time is important. We forget that. I look at my own parents who ran a family history center for 30 years, more than a full-time job, you know? And, and of course, I guess we should say people are happy doing these things. They believe they're happy. I don't think they think about doing anything else. You know, you're just so in the system. You don't imagine anything else exists. So right. it's hard and to make people understand. Like there's a, there's a, when I, when I left, right. And I stepped out and I started really, I started really letting myself, I made a deal with myself where I was basically like, Ben, you can do whatever you want to do. Right. Like I, there's still going to be a part of you that's going to like govern that and make sure that the consequences of doing that are going to be great. But I'm just going to let whatever desire, whatever thing comes out of you, I'm just going to let you do that. And you know what I learned? I don't want to do anything bad. I don't want to do anything cruel. I don't want to mistreat people. All of the things that I want to do are good for other people. <laughs> and so there's this, there's this allowance, right? There's this, there's this, there's this part of me that wants to just express, right? That just comes up and out and it wants to kind of be like, ha ha. And that's part of everyone, right? Everyone has this utterly like unique and beautiful self-expression, right? And, um, and we, that's what we need. <laughs> we need everyone's unique, beautiful self-expression because that's the way that we fix all of the bullshit that's happening, right? The, we, we have to, we have to self-express our way into a better world. And Mormonism is so gross, because it it comes in and it tells you squelch that self-expression and we will tell you what to think. What do you want to what should you think? Think celestial. Right? You know what that reminds me of? Other than being literally the worst prophecy in history, what a I'm gonna I'm gonna issue a response to him. I'm working on it right now, but I'm gonna I'm gonna oh. give a counter talk as the true prophet of Mormonism to Nelson. And uh, it's going to be way better than his because his sucked. But think about how gross, this is mental programming. This reminded me so much of Ophelia and her dad in the in the play Hamlet, right? There's this great scene in Hamlet where Ophelia is kind of confused about what's happening. And her dad comes to her and says, I will tell you what to think. And that's the beginning of the end for Ophelia because she surrenders to another mind that doesn't have her interest at heart. And then she ends up 
dead by the end of the play. And that's what I think of when I see this very old, very out of touch, kind of gross old man, tottering, think celestial. I'll tell you what to think. And really, I just want to like scratch out the celestial and just say, guys, the real message of conference is you got to think. You got to think about this. You got to think about what's going on. You got to think about where you are. And you got to think about, you got to feel what your body wants to do. Because I promise you, your body doesn't want to do anything bad. Bodies aren't bad. Bodies don't do bad things. This, the, the thought that comes to me as, as we talk about these things is um, when you step outside the box, because like you said, when you were when you were making the bread, when you were getting up in the morning, you didn't see it. You were in it, but you didn't see it. You didn't recognize it. Sometimes when we're in the church, we don't see it. We don't recognize. We don't see when we're being trafficked. But in, in reality, we're being spiritually trafficked in the church, because what does a trafficker do is he comes and he says, I'm going to, he comes and he takes someone and he says, you know, I'm going to take you from your family and I'm going to exploit you. And the church does that same thing. We see them come say, we're, if you don't do this, we're going to take you from your family. Right. You have to do what's best for us, or we're going to take you from your family. We're, we're, so in, a, in an essence, we're being spiritually trafficked. We're being taken from our family just as real. And anyone who's experienced this, anyone who's gone through a faith crisis and has been, you know, rejected by their family because of their change in belief, you feel very much like you've been trafficked. You've been oh. taken from your family. It's like, where's my family? How do I get them back? I, dude, I love that term so much. And if it hasn't been coined already, you should coin it and tell everyone that it was <laughs> right and make t-shirts because spiritual trafficking is a fantastic like frame to think about what not just Mormonism, but what a lot of cults do to people, right? I, I feel that sometimes when I think about my family's history, right? My family's been, been Mormon, for almost 200 years, my ancestor joined, my seventh great-grandfather joined in 1835. And he was in, he was a first-generation immigrant in New York. So his family immigrates from Scotland. They're poor. The dude's named Ebenezer. And so I'm sure he got made fun of because what kind of name is Ebenezer, right? And, and so he gets hooked with this spiritual idea, with a, with a lie, right? Jo Everyone in the world knows that Joseph Smith lied and they all look at the Mormons who are saying that he didn't and they think that's ridiculous. They're laughing at us. That's why it feels so uncomfortable when we go out on mission sometimes and everyone's like, they won't give you the time of day. It's because it's so utterly ridiculous, right? But that's that's the that's the story that my grand great 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 grandfather gets hooked by, and then that spiritual identity moves him across a continent. That's wild that that happens, and that has ha that happened to I don't know how like I don't know how what your guys' family like Mormon history is, but I imagine that we're dealing with like like these large movements of people over very long periods of time because a dude lied about something. And, and I think until we really grapple with that, right, that's sort of the core wound 
in our psyche. And it's that, it's that inability to hold him accountable for that lie. And then to, by doing so, step ourselves into the truth that has kept us trapped for generations. And that's what keeps us, that's why we're vulnerable to people like Tim Ballard is because we don't end MLMs and yeah. all kinds, like yeah. Utah loves its cults, man. There are tons of them yeah. here. And the reason why is because we haven't, we haven't said, get thee hence to that original demon, that original lie. And so by doing that, step into the reality of our own existence, because the reality is that <laughs> that everyone in the LDS church, and I say this with like so much love for them, there's not a there's not a shred of of hatred in my body for any person in Mormonism. I love they are all my people. I love all of them. And some of them have been bamboozled. They have been tricked. And that and, and they are living in a fantasy land, right? And it's fine that things are made up. Like I love Lord of the Rings, mm-hmm. right? It's great. But when, when we went, but that's a fantasy world. If I were born believing and my parents and everyone around me told me that Lord of the Rings was real and I lived in middle earth, I would be so pissed when I found out that wasn't true. And that's what's happened essentially to every Mormon. We've been sold a fiction. We've been told a lie. And until we really grapple with that, we're going to continue to be vulnerable to other people's lies because we're listening, but we're not feeling, right? We're not in our bodies. We're not connected to our intuition because we've already rejected it because we've all heard enough. Let's be real, you guys. We have all heard enough and experienced enough in Mormonism to have the response to that be, oh my God, right? We have all had that moment of like, For me, one of those big moments was when I first went to the temple and I look around and I see all of these people wearing these super weird clothes. And I'm like, what is this? Right. This doesn't feel good. This doesn't feel safe. I feel right. And it's that boundary, right? It's that boundary emotion. And then it's overridden because all of your family members are there. And so it's, we're teaching people in this religious system to not listen to their intuition so that we, they can be manipulated so that we can make money off of them. And so it's our job as people who leave and recognize this, like we got to wake the other people up and we got to do the work on ourselves so that we don't keep falling for frauds because there are always going to be frauds both in the world and in Mormonism. Like there will be so many frauds in Mormonism over the next hundred years as it slowly dies and they will all try to take a piece of it. They'll all try to say, Oh, I'm the true one. I'm the, I'm the real, right? Like I'm the actual version. And uh, it's because it's a, it's like a little lie factory. Right. And so it's like, or a lie mine, like Joseph Smith found a lie mine and they've just been mining that thing for as long as they can. They're going to try to take as much wealth out of us as they possibly can. Well, this Mike is going to be a great comedy show. Um. <laughs> I know. I feel like we're like, huh. <laughs> but no, 
you yeah. have to have these real conversations. And I love that you said that about intuition because Landon will tell you that's one of my soapboxes that we're trained to constantly override your gut feeling and your intuition. If you don't feel right about, say, the November 15th policy, pray that away. You got to get right. You know, you do not listen to your gut and you're told your feelings don't come from internally. Oh, that's the spirit of the Holy Ghost. No. So I think that's a it's a challenge for people who step away to really learn to understand that you have natural intuition. You have a lot and you need to listen to yourself because if something's off, it is off. It's not Satan telling you that. It's you, your body, your spirit. You know you need to trust yourself. And that's a huge part of it is that you are constantly raised to never trust yourself, but to look externally to make sure that you're doing the right thing. And so I think all these things that are happening right now, this craziness with everything that we mentioned, it's it's all part of that. It makes us look at ourselves. It makes us look at our community, our friends, our relatives, you know, these external events that are happening. And, and hopefully maybe have some epiphanies, right? I feel like I'm having some epiphanies kind of daily. Like I never thought of it that way. And oh my goodness. So, and what you're saying today is giving me some epiphanies too. So, but like- Can I share an epiphany that I just had? Yeah, please. As we've been thinking about conference. So um, I was chatting with a friend um, who is, uh, she's she's still in the the church um, and she's tried, but she's very, she's, she is opposed- ideologically to so much of what the church does with women, with uh, queers, with uh, people of color, like with all of the, all of the problematic. She's one of those people that's like, I see all of the problems, but she's just like still tied to it because of her family and because of her history. Right. She, she liked being Mormon. She -hmm. was a good Mormon, you know? Um, And, and the, and Nelson's Nelson's talk was just devastating to her. Yeah. Like she 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 cried for hours afterwards because of what that meant. And I know that there are people who who have a view of God and prophets that would say, "Oh, well that's just a prophet of God speaking the hard truth." And I would just respond in the like the most loving and powerful way, "God is not cruel." And neither are his prophets because God does. I I believe in God. I don't know what that means, but I believe. And I believe that God does send prophets to us. I think that God has people who come who represent him and have something to say to us. Um, They're not all white men in Utah. And they're not cruel they don't say cruel things. And what Nelson did was so cruel. And when I realized that, I remembered something from my therapy. So part of the therapy that I had to do is I had to learn how to protect myself from uh, narcissists because I learned that I have something called a caretaker personality, which basically means that I was programmed as a human to not worry about myself, but to take care of everyone around me. And so that energy makes me particularly vulnerable to a narcissistic energy, which basically says everything's about me, right? Um, That's probably familiar to a lot of people in Mormonism because Mormonism started by a narcissist breeds narcissists and caretakers. But um, I remembered some of the things that I've learned uh, as I've learned to set boundaries with narcissists. 
And what I, what I remembered was the narcissist requires you to believe and acknowledge your belief in the mask that they've constructed that they insist society sees, see them as. So the narcissist cannot be real. They have constructed a fictional identity. They've, they've lied. They've created a lie. And they require everyone in the system to acknowledge that that, is, that, that thing is real, even though it's not. Right? And you see this in narcissistic family systems all the time, where the narcissist will uh, say something about the world and insist that everyone see that that way, right? That's what they're doing, right? They've constructed a mask of them as lovely old caring men who are cute and have these really nice homilies to say, think celestial. And in doing that, they have packed that mask with a whole bunch of things that make our bodies feel gross, right? They've made it un, like they've made it intolerable for us on purpose because what they want us to do is they want us to ignore the feelings that we have in our bodies and support and verify, sustain, you might say, to sustain the mask. And I think that it's time that we all acknowledge that they're doing this intentionally. That they're intentional because that's what narcissists do. They intentionally create mirages to fool people. And they have done this very successfully for a very long time. And they're probably so successful about at it that they've, that they've bamboozled themselves, right? And so we have to acknowledge that as a community. And I think we have to start having real conversations about um, how do we, how do we move forward? Like how do we resolve this tension at the heart of our community? Which is that we have people who are out of touch with reality and they are in power and that's dangerous because uh, we have some pretty crazy shit going on and we need to be talking about like water and not having lawns, not about how gay people are bad. It's a smoke screen. That's for sure. Wow. These are some really intense concepts and really important conversations. Do you have any thoughts, Landon? Um, <laughs> I yeah, promise. we love talking to Ben no it just makes you think like it just sets you on this path where you just see things in in with this clarity that you're like I haven't really yeah I haven't put it together like that before Ben's really good at this not only is he a great comedian but you're also a philosopher I think and well, you can I mean, really put things I'm, out in a special I, way I tell, everyone, I tell everyone that I'm a prophet and the prophet thing kind of there start, we go um and it still is mostly a joke because I think that if if you that's got to be funny. Right. And, and I, yeah. and I also think too, that like part of, part of what drew me to comedy is it's not just about funny. It's also about true. Right. Yeah. And I think that comedy is such a powerful way to, uh, to smuggle truth into closed minds. So uh, 
one of the things that was kind of fun about conference is while while Nelson was in there telling everyone to think celestial, I was standing on the corner outside in a red Satan onesie with a big red sign that said, vote FKB for profit. And I was yelling at everyone, hey, guys, you should vote for me for profit. And I brought a golden. I don't know if I've told you this or not, but I I actually found a golden plate and in the weirdest in the weirdest way possible. And, um, that was when I was like, I think I have to be profit now because I didn't want to be, cause I was busy being wicked. Um, but then I like found this golden plate and I was like, I mean, that's what you do. If you find a golden plate in Mormonism, like you, I think you have to become profit. So I brought it with me. Criteria. It's the criteria. <laughs> like that's how, that's how, I, that's how it starts. And so I put it on the ground in front of me and I had my sign and I oh invited people to come. I was like, Hey, do you want to come touch my golden plate? Wow. Right here. You can see it with your real eyes. Like I'm the first Mormon prophet in history to show you his golden plate. And uh, that was funny. It was super hilarious. The other protesters were, they didn't know what to do with me because they're like, they're like, your church is full of pedophiles and all of your priests, which is not, I mean, which they have very valid points, (laughs) but they are, uh, they are a little bit angry. Um, And, uh, but what I noticed was that as I'm doing that, right, I'm just being silly and stupid, but I'm saying things like if I were prophet, I would turn all of these temples into community centers and I would build us a public transit system in Utah, right? I'm starting to say things that are pretty good ideas and are also kind of funny, right? And, um, and as I'm doing that, right, people are coming and they're, they'll, they look at me, they look at the other protesters and I can see them sort of shut down. They're like, oh, like these, these motherfuckers. And then they see me (laughs) and I'm like, I got this big old red sign. I'm wearing a Satan onesie. I've got a tail. You're a party. (laughs) And they just, they just laugh. Right. They're just like, ha. Right. And so they immediately, excuse me. What they immediately do, right. Is they open. They're open now. They've opened themselves up to me. They're laughing. They're coming up and taking pictures with me, right? I had so many people who, I don't know how much of a, like how, how much of a believing Mormon you have to be to actually physically go to conference. Cause I never physically went to conference, but I imagine that it's like, you got to go park in downtown Salt Lake and then walk through a hail of protesters to go to a building. So it's kind of a big deal. Um, And I have those people laughing, taking pictures with me coming up and doing this, right? And I'm in the background like this. <laughs> and so we're just being stupid and fun. And, uh, but it's this, it's this slow softening, right? It's this, yeah. now I'm in their heads, right? Yeah. Now they kind of trust me a little bit. Now they kind of feel, they feel like this, they feel like this relax, like this release of tension in their body. And that makes them more, uh, more open to some things that I might have to say, especially if I come at it gently, but firmly, especially if I can kind of lean in and say, you guys, listen to a prophet's voice. That dude just told you to not listen to anyone who doesn't believe Mormonism. That's most of the world. (laughs) Yeah, that's the little secret about that for sure. Oh my gosh. So- would you rather listen to that guy or as an alternative, you could vote for me 
for profit in April. And if I'm profit, you can believe whatever makes you a good person. That's the best approach. It really is. Like you said, just, and I, I, I tried to write down what you said before, but there's so much truth in comedy like that. And it's, it's very unassuming and it's not threatening. And yet there's these kernels of truth, which is why your show, because Landon and I have gone to your show before, not this last time, but the time before. And it was very much like that. You know, it was funny, but there was a lot of truth and a lot of things to take away. So I think yeah. that kind of brings us back full circle. What do you think, Landon? <laughs> We've run yeah. the gamut of emotion sure. here. A lot of people <laughs> might be going, wow, for a, for a comic, that wasn't very funny. Uh, and and I think the reason for that is, it's like Ben said, you know, uh, sometimes uh, the, the comedy can open up the truth, but sometimes you have mm -hmm. to talk about the truth and do this. There, there are some things in life that aren't funny. Yeah. Uh, but in yeah. the end, we've got to look back and, and laugh at things and, and take it. And that that's what the comedy show is all about. And that's what Ben, yeah. uh, you can see that that's something that he's good at is explaining yeah. hard truths, but then he's going to make you laugh about it in the end. So, that's right. That's right. Ben. Yep. So we just, we want to thank Ben so much for coming on. It was, uh, it was really awesome. Did you have fun, Ben? <laughs> oh God, I had, I had a lot of fun. Thank you so much for, for inviting me and for helping me promote the show. Um, yeah. Also, you know, the, I, I think that, I think that in order to really laugh, we have to first acknowledge the pain, right? And I think that's, yes. it's not that I want to be, because I'm trying to create a very specific experience for people at my shows, right? I don't want them to come and feel like, I want them to come and feel like they've been heard and that their trauma has been acknowledged and that that's first, right? Because once I acknowledge your trauma, then I can make fun of you for it. Because guys, it's so stupid the way that we all got traumatized because we got traumatized because some 14 year old farm boy wrote like fan fiction for the Bible. <laughs> when you put it that way. <laughs> That's wild that that happened. Right. And it's kind of, you know, it's also created a, a, a certain kind of human. And yeah. uh, I'm, I'm really grateful to know you both. Uh, I think you're both very cool humans. And uh, I think that in large part, that's because of the the life that you've had to build for yourself um, in discovering who you are. So I think I also want to just maybe say thanks to both of you for doing the work, like for for making the choice to step out into your real life. Um, and thanks for inviting me to come be a part of that that real life with you. Oh, that's so awesome. We love you, Ben. You're fabulous. So we want to remind everybody, Ben's show next weekend, Friday the 13th and Saturday, you can go online to Wise Guys and get tickets. Is it the South Jordan location? Again? No, South Jordan. No, it's going to be in Salt Lake. So okay. All right. We better make that clear. Yeah. Because he goes to different wise guys. So this one is in Salt Lake. So jump online. Super, super cozy, super intimate. Um, it'll feel, uh, I might do like a reverse temple endowment there. So um, you never know. You never know what the spirit of the Lord might move me to do. Woo, especially on Friday the 13th. And as Ben mentioned before, it looks like tickets are like almost half sold out for that uh, Rickles room. So please, everybody jump online. This is going to be incredible. You've just had a taste of it here. So um, please uh, comment. Uh, tell us about your experiences, your thoughts on what Ben and what we've discussed. I think there was a lot here and maybe an episode we have to watch twice to even cover, you know, comprehend everything that we talked about. But it was absolutely amazing. Um, please like and subscribe um, to Mormonish. And if you'd like to be made aware of when new episodes
episodes come out, you can hit that um, notification bell. Also, if you'd like to support and donate to Mormonish to help support our infrastructure of our podcast, we have links in the show notes um, on how to donate through Venmo and through PayPal. And we really, really appreciate all of you that already do that. And we just absolutely love and appreciate all of our viewers and listeners. And we'll say goodbye for now. And again, thank you, Ben, uh, from Mormonish. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, you guys. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Mormonish. We really appreciate our listeners and would love to hear from you if you have a story you'd like to share. You can email us at mormonishpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and on our website, mormonishpodcast.org. And don't forget to look for us on YouTube and like and subscribe. Keep joyful, everybody.